0: (laughs) Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. This week, I'm on location at the Moscow Urban Forum, where I'm here in the speaker ready room with Asaf Biederman, CEO of Super Pedestrian, also affiliated, of course, with the MIT Sensible City Lab uh, and one-time Stroke Institute instructor. We were just discussing uh, here at the annual showpiece event by the city of Moscow and its various backers to feature the Russian capital as it's justifiably a sort of uh, experiment in transforming a city from its infamous horrendous five-hour traffic jams on the way to the airport into a more walkable, pedestrianized city with mixed results. Um, But thank you so much for joining us, Asaf.
1: Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: So, we just finished a session on disrupting future mobility, which was a mixed bag, as you might expect. But I guess one way to dive in is, is if you could talk a bit about the, the stat that you worked on in 2014 with Sensible at Sensible City Lab, um, where you did modeling of shared rides that showed that basically the entire notion of Uber pool and the notion of shared mobility was never going to happen, that you just simply can't do it above a certain point without the kind of deadhead miles that we've seen. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I feel like if people had been listening to you in 2014, things could have been a lot different.
1: Um, Sure, first of all, we started this study actually quite a bit earlier, 2008 and 2009, uh, before that industry uh, evolved, and we were looking at taxi rides um, as as a sort of proxy for demand for mobility, and then we tried to combine people, to combine taxi trips then later when the ride hailing industry formed, we had you know, much larger data sets to work with. And um, for me the interesting part is not that pool can't work, is that as a single mode of transportation, right? It's, it's just not gonna scale. And the reason is very basic, is that you, there's not enough overlap between my routine and your routine, so to speak, uh, in order to share a car most of the time. And that's not a matter of consumer attitude. It's a matter of the structure and the layout of cities. Where people work, where people live. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for example, in edge cases, where there is stacked land use, where you know people live above an office that's above a restaurant, there's a lot more symmetry in the demand, and you can you can operate in those places like you know Manhattan below 59th, the center of the Hong Kong Island, the center of Paris. These places are few and far between. There you could fill maybe a seven seater uh, uh, minivan uh, in a pooling condition, but otherwise, once you go above two people in a sedan, uh, you start. To create such delays to pick up the next person, that at this point you're creating more traffic than removing. Now, forget about the fact that people won't want to wait 45 minutes to pick another person up. What are we doing? We're driving now new miles that we weren't driving before, and that's where the solution becomes questionable. However, pool is a, is very strong in the context of multimodality, but the problem is not so much the pool as the feeders to it, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I would say where where multimodality is strong is where you put buses and then now we're in the realm. So this is what I think is interesting is because in 2014, so you were seeing ahead of time, all these experiments in pooling and also microtransit, this notion that we were going to build these feeders uh, and send them there, Um, you know, bridge in Kansas City, chariot with Ford, um, you know, you did, I mean, were they always doomed to fail? Did your model predict them to fail?
1: Look, it, it's not surprising. You, you you go up to a 16, we modeled up to a 16 seater and we saw that it's very hard to go above 50% occupancy. Very, very difficult. Now, you can, you know, in a in a, in a shared mode context, you can easily imagine people walking to the pool or taking a scooter or, a, or an e-bike to the pool or to the subway and from the subway to the pool and to the e-bike or any combination thereof, but that's not a new idea. That's called the bus, more efficient, maybe on demand, but what's I think even more interesting, which is emerging uh, now, is that if you think of constructing a multimodal route for most most people using uh, a shared mode for what's called the trunk, meaning the, the 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 big chunk where a lot of people share the origin and destination, like you know what the subway or the light rail does today, if you think of pool uh, as something that's that's going to be used in that in that context as as part of a shared uh, multimodal route then fixed routes emerge. Right? It's, and you've uh,
0: reinvented uh, the bus.
1: So, but but better, cheaper, right? Yeah. And 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 of course buses are full only a very small part of the day. Yeah. We all know that. And take a lot of space. They're very expensive. So it's a great idea. It's gonna be useful. Uh, but you know not just five seaters, probably bigger ones as well. Uh, and and it's all in the context of multimodality if you want to see this really pick up. The good thing is that there have been there has there has been literature and practical uh, a study and implementation of multimodal planning since the 70s. This is mm-hmm. not new, there's a lot of knowledge that's built around this, and we're just going to now boost it with technology that allows us to manage this in real time.
0: Yeah, and it's just interesting though that, you know, for the five years, starting in, you know, five years ago, two years before Bruce Schaller started putting on his papers about the added vehicle miles travel that Uber and Lyft were providing in New York, your model would have predicted it because of course they've done pool and they've pursued these modes they've just simply ignored the externalities and sort of gone from there but not, not to labor that too much and before we get into super pedestrian what you're up to now um this is my first trip to moscow so i have absolutely no context to understand the transformation and as i mentioned at the top of the podcast you spent some time years ago teaching here at stroka you're not a regular i know but i'm curious your impressions of the city and how it's changed um because you know we're sitting here to me it's funny we're here in the basement of the performing arts center in zaradi park which is of course designed by Diller Scofidio and Renfo did the High Line? I'm, I'm spending time in that park, having spooky uh, notions of like, right? I'm in the sort of globalized high of various cities too. So it's you can sort of get a sense of where Moscow is headed with this. But but yeah, I mean, how how was the, how were the battle days of 2010?
1: Look, I, I spent a lot more time here in 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, and um, uh, there, then I was coming here every few months for a few days. Uh, over a period and we were all over the city. We were working with the city hall and with Strelka uh, uh on a class uh which was taking place at Strelka and with students at MIT who came to visit and we did a whole bunch of projects. Um and so then I got a you know quite a view of what the city was like and it's um first of all I love the place. It's it's a fascinating city. And uh you know if you're a tourist here it's a little bit hard to discover it because there is so much uh hidden. In this place and there is and and look now i've only been here since yesterday night so anything i'll say now is totally superficial uh but my impression now is that uh, versus you know you know just eight years ago uh the city is more walkable yes we're in the dead center but uh it was very hard to cross the street there was almost no sidewalk and uh and and now it looks like there is a lot more room for uh, for pedestrians there's it's not just car priority and I hear from people who are local that, uh, that it's not just in the dead center, that there are pockets in the city where this is beginning to grow and grow uh, and really enable uh, uh, pedestrian life. An anecdote from yesterday, um, a driver uh, of the shuttle told me, I, I asked him that question, I was like, wow, this city looks so much more walkable. And I asked him about this and he said, you know, I, me and my wife never used to walk just to go for a walk. And now we do it. And I never thought of this as an option. It wasn't even interesting. And all of a sudden, it's an experience we just walk nowhere, right?
0: <laughs> it's amazing to be in a city where that's a new sensation, right? Like, and that also speaks to the whole, you know, the combination of land use and behavior change and how those both had to co-evolve. Um, moving along, you know, one thing, so what stood out for me is was super pedestrian. And obviously, super pedestrian spun out of MIT Sensible City with the Copenhagen Wheel originally, and I want to hear more about your plans on this. But it was great to see your analysis of the terrible economics of scooters, which we all sort of know, but I'd never seen it put so succinctly about how basically they're losing the equivalent of revenue per ride, you know, that the scooters are a gigantic cash sink. And I, I'm curious, you know, when you talk to, before getting into your own work, because this is obviously the core of Pedestrian now, but, you know, what are, what are the scooter operators thinking about this, about when this is going to turn around? You know, we're going we're gonna to lose 100% of every ride but make it up on volume kind of joke. Or uh, I'd be curious your analysis of like, are things going to get worse before they get better, or how's this going?
1: Look, the I find what's happening right now very interesting because you know the, these companies, and you know starting from you know Hello Bike and Mobike going electric in China, and then you know the scooter companies in the United States now spreading all over the world, or over what 110 operators today around the world of various micromobility modes. Um, I think first of all, I think it's great, right? I think these companies are doing amazing work in that they're proving that there is real demand and they're paving the road also for cities to adopt this because you know we at the lab we've worked with mayors for what since 2004 Uh, all throughout the world in Asia, Europe, US, South South America and they'll take an alternative to private car ownership any day right now I'm exaggerating a bit because of course, it's important to integrate these new modes in a, in, in a sustainable way into the city. It can't, you know, block the sidewalk for uh, for disabled people. It can't, you know, just be littering the sidewalk. But these problems will be solved. To me, the interesting thing is that there's now been a proof. First of all, that people are willing to pay good money mm-hmm. per ride, many times a day per vehicle, right? Three, four, five, depending on the place. Sometimes even more uh, per day per vehicle, per licensed vehicle. Um, and the cities are willing to regulate them in and they're interested. And you look at what's happened now just in Germany, right? 58 yep. cities are regulating scooters in. Uh, and and that, I think, is is very positive. So the only box, so to speak, that's left to check is how do these business models become sustainable? So, you know, you see operators today and uh, uh, you know, some of them are uh, trying to build their own hardware. But the reality is that very few, actually none of them, really build their hardware. Everything inside is still outsourced. There's a tiny corner sometimes, maybe an IOT device is programmed or things like this, uh, or maybe you, you, know, you would dictate how the vehicle actually looks or uh, some mecha- basic mechanical aspects of it. But the core issue with these vehicles, uh, in terms of ma- turning around the unit economics, is, is the embedded electronics and, and the cloud support systems. And there's not a single company, I was very surprised to see, there's not a single company in the industry that actually engineers the control system, all of them, Mm-hmm. In a in a vehicle as a platform from the ground up, everybody aggregates, you know, something from here, or another thing from there, puts it together, and then they wonder why this thing doesn't work.
0: Yeah, could you break that apart for a second? What what does the current stack look like for micromobility? Right. I mean, we all know, it started with sort of like Ninebot, Segway, and they were buying from those, and now we see Lime and Bird trying to innovate there. As Bird just came up with their own dynamic, but but yeah, when you look at the typical like either the new Bird bike or a typical one, who who are the major component manufacturers? Because I think this is the, there misunderstood. Are
1: ma- there are there are many different companies, depending if you're talking about you know electric bikes or scooters. The electric bike industry is a lot more mature. Yep. right? There are 440 OEMs in China which do basically final assembly. They will weld the frame for you and then they would source motors and batteries and connectivity components from various suppliers uh, in China. And, uh, and a portion of these companies also make scooters. And they're part of the supply chain uh, that would you know, weld again a frame for you and then source motors, etc. Uh, the issue is that the mechanical challenges of scooters are not Significant, right? Yes, mm-hmm. they are abused in many ways because they're used so intensively, and some people vandalize them, etc. But but it's a very simple vehicle, mm-hmm. right? It's a few aluminum extrusions put together. If you size it right, you know you can get reasonable life out of the mechanical aspect. The big problem is in the electronics, mm-hmm. and at the moment, uh, uh, that and that takes years to develop, um, many years to develop. Right? We've been working on the, the first four years of Super Pedestrian. We spent on R and D, right? Four years, we didn't release anything, and we built a platform that then can be put into any vehicles, mm-hmm. any vehicle, any micro vehicle under three kilowatts. So, a small covered car, an e bike, a, a scooter, a moped, um, and the idea there is, we develop the motor controllers. The, we actually specify the motor windings and its own magnetic profile. We, uh, you know, we select specifically for each application the right lithium chemistry. We write our own. Uh, 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 a battery management software and developed the hardware for it. And then all the connectivity, we don't have IoT devices. We have connectivity embedded um, a, within the system in a form of an individual microcomputer that manages all encryption between the various components mm-hmm. so that you can ensure data integrity within the vehicle uh, and communication back and forth to the cloud in an encrypted way. But the core of our work is, a, uh, is another microcomputer that sits on the vehicle, there are five all in all, uh, which uh, has decision-making capabilities. And uh, the, way you, you know, the way we look at the problem is, um, microvehicles are very vulnerable, right? They're mm-hmm. small, they need to be super, super cheap, right? You're talking five, $600 for the largest battery sort of version uh, of a vehicle all in which means that your control system needs to cost, you know, 100 $150 for everything, right? That's an order of magnitude, an order of magnitude and a half cheaper than what's inside a car. Now at the same time, right, we're asking it to do things that cars can't do today. What we are, you know, where we're focusing at Superpedestrian is in order to transform safety and unit economics in, in micromobility, the focus should be uh, on avoiding failure in the first place. It's not about telematics, oh, something broke. That's too little, too late. It's about predicting or seeing in real time mm-hmm. when something is about to fail and taking action to prevent the failure from occurring in the first place. Now, one way to solve this, if you're building, say, a satellite, is to throw a lot of sensors everywhere mm-hmm. and then do you know continuous analysis and then have a whole bunch of switches that you can open and close in real time, so to speak. To respond to a problem first of all uh, a the you know if, 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 if you deploy so much technology to avo- to, to 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 detect uh, diagnostic events and avoid failure number one you're blowing your budget yeah number two the system becomes co- so complicated that it might become a failure point in and of itself so what we said is let's write some basic rules but most importantly let's observe how the system behaves the shape of waveforms on each of the FETs, the information flow within the system, what command is issued when, what are the temperature profiles of various components. And let's train our system uh, for what things should be in steady state, uh, but also when things change, right, how can you use this as an inference for failure, right? And, and it's, it's very robust. We've learned to detect the 100 most common things that would break a micro vehicle and take action within you know six to nine milliseconds uh, sorry six to nine nanoseconds that 's about the time you have to respond before a battery catches fire, say if water penetrates, even though you have all the fancy ceiling, etc, use and abuse, your vehicle still needs to be safe after it's been compromised. right so uh, what we do is basically have you have a small training uh, algorithm where you learn how to dif- how the change in the behavior of your control system in real time can be attributed to various failures that the vehicle is experiencing, and then when you see those in real time, the vehicle takes action. The result is super robust, right? So we can, in our vehicles, uh, prevent more than 50% of failures that occur in other scooters or other e-bikes uh, before they even occur. So they, the, it's, it's, the impact on economics and safety is significant because it's not that you fix things faster or that, you know, it costs less to fix. You don't need to fix. It doesn't break in the first place, right? So. You know, if things still, if a vehicle still experienced a failure, then eventually uh, it opens its own service ticket, right? There is a predictive maintenance uh, algorithm running on the cloud side, which receive high-resolution data from within the vehicle. But I'm not talking uh, uh, a, a aggregated sort of small statistics like a, a battery voltage and and, and, and and speed. I'm talking component uh, behavior data, data flow, temperature profiles, other performance-related uh, uh, type of data, and it can then say, well, service ticket open. Vehicle X needs a new motor controller, bring it now, or bring it in 500 miles, uh, and the result is that eventually you can operate a fleet uh, of very large volume of vehicles with much fewer people on the ground to support that fleet, and at a much lower cost, Yeah. right, so, and so safety is impacted, but, but, but unit economics and safety go hand in hand.
0: So it sounds like to me that basically you know Superpedestrian wants to be what the Bosch or Johnson controls of the emerging micromobility sector. How how do you see overall like how you guys slot into that? Because you know one of the questions that comes out of it is like. Why haven't we seen more big-league manufacturers of micromobility devices? We're actually, I think, doing a session at Commotion LA this year on who will be the next Henry Ford. And I think some people would say, like, RG Scarring of Rivian or something like that, but I'm betting that it's going to be a micromobility company. Like, there might be a Ford motor or someone, and it might be, it might be Chinese. But how, how do you see that? Like, who are your customers, and how do you see that, the whole stack resolving to where you guys slot into it?
1: So, at the moment, our customers are... Um, are the operators? Right? Mm-hmm. We we give them a, you know a full stack of uh, you know the vehicles, uh, and uh, the accompanying cloud software in order to do the predictive maintenance, etc. Uh, so in a, in a sense, what you get is uh, vehicles that you can that the total cost of ownership uh, of over a year. Significantly lower, right? They live for a year instead of for a few months. You charge them every five to seven days instead of daily. The maintenance cost is slashed. Downtime, instead of being days from the moment the problem uh, is detected, uh, is hours. Um, so the basics uh, are addressed in a meaningful way with our technology. Uh, at the same time, uh, there is a new wave of customers which we're seeing as, you know, in some way the industry is experiencing consolidation. Right, where you see uh, uh, some operators merging, or you know, um, um, a, whether through acquisition or in the case of uh, uh, of bankruptcies, um, so consolidation on one end. On the other end, there is a almost a fragmentation where cities, especially in Europe, begin to require public-private partnerships uh, for for operating micro mobility. And you know, if you if you have a large entity like you know of sorts, uh, you know, wanting to operate, they need technologies, right? And uh, there, it's much more of a software license deal for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think the how it's going to evolve, nobody really knows. Two years from now, right? We yeah. Didn't predict the future would be doing other things. We
0: didn't predict scooters in the first place two years ago.
1: <laughs> well, surprisingly enough, if you look at our patents from April two thousand and fourteen, um, we have a lot of patents on what we call semi-human powered electric vehicles. They're not on bikes. They're not on e-bikes. They're on semi-human powered electric vehicles. We didn't know. And we still don't know what are going to be the popular modes. Right? People are going to vote with their feet. People love scooters. Awesome. People love e-bikes in Europe. Great. What's going to be next? We don't know. There's going to be this sort of trial and error kind of process uh, until we find the next vehicle. Because we need other types of vehicles. We need small covered vehicles, mm-hmm. right, to slap your kids or shopping. Uh, uh, we, need, uh, we need vehicles for the elderly, right? Uh, they're, they're, we're just at the beginning. So if you're asking uh, how... How how is this going? How come we haven't seen more companies in in this space? I don't have an answer to this. Number one is so. I think today we're the only company that designs all the electronics as a platform from the ground up, and we're certainly the only company that works on this what we call vehicle intelligence mm-hmm. on the on building capacity for the vehicle to to protect itself in real time, um, and so but that's a lot of work, right? That's years, of, you know. Five, six years of development so far, and we 're just starting right uh, so first of all, you know it requires a lot of funding, second of all it 's a big risk uh, third of all we didn 't know when the sharing industry was un- would unfold. we expected it would unfold a lot earlier yeah. so we 're happy it 's unfolding now, we're very very, very happy, but uh um it, it, it's it's risky. So that's number one. Number two is I expect there will be a lot of players in the space. There is this is a gigantic market. There's room for multiple players yeah. uh, uh, to play as suppliers of technology for these future urban mobility solutions. So I'm welcoming our you know future competition. So
0: one thing that has to come up on this, because I think it's like a bylaw of the podcast by now, but you know, given the fact that you're basically building onboard telemetry systems for scooters. What are your thoughts on mobility data specification that LADoT created is now part of the Open Mobility Foundation? The notion that we're getting all this sort of telemetry data off scooters that cities are using, you know, unaggregated. I mean, I don't know if they're collecting yours, but uh, I'm curious your thoughts about whether that is within the realm of cities to collect that level of raw data or whether, uh, you know, you guys are more siding with um, the authors, say, of of, uh, Assembly Bill 1112 kind of thing,
1: which is the pushback on whether
0: cities should have that level of granularity.
1: So, look, I, first of all, I love what, what Solida Reynolds and the team are doing with, with, uh, with MDS. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's important. Put aside, you know, micro-mobility. If I, if I put my, my sort of MIT uh, planner's hat on, uh, the, the data infrastructure is, is, an, is another public infrastructure that needs to be in place just like roads are mm-hmm. in order to be able to manage more effectively the systems that support cities right that's uh, this is something that's 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 going to be happening not just in a smart grid it's now coming into transportation into uh, uh into air quality monitoring and it will be everywhere right sewers are becoming smart okay so i think that we should take for granted how is it implemented you know a i i see a bigger role for cities to play in terms of uh I don't want to say dictating the rules because it sounds like it's it's only negativistic. But if cities are interested in providing more transportation supply, mm-hmm. right, in modes that are not cars, there needs to be, first of all, an embrace of these vehicles, right, not small quantities. Like if you want people to change behavior, these licenses need to be one or two orders of magnitude bigger per city.
0: Tens of city. thousands, hundreds of
1: thousands? We don't know yet, but probably tens of thousands for for a city like LA and, you know, in the single digits for, for medium-sized cities in the United States, um, but that's measurable, right? And, and and if you're looking at a sort of a multimodal city where modes synchronize with each other, the city has to drive that, right? Because if you optimize for, for increasing the use of public transportation, right, of, of, of mass transit, uh, you need to have the bigger the oracle view of the city, so to speak. You can't be just operating in a, in a sort of blind silo as an operator. So the input of the city is required so that you know uh, that so that, that there is equity in terms of uh, service, yep. right? Where are these new vehicles being placed, right? And if they're being placed in areas where an operator uh, uh, makes less money, how do you incentivize them to go there? right? Uh, if you optimize for minimizing vehicle miles traveled overall for the city and not for uh, operator ridership, how do you compensate the operators in that condition? How do you define the rules of speed limits, maybe it's by street, of parking limits, of curbside use, etc.? Uh, all these need to be done in the context of embracing these new modes as something that should scale, right? Yep. To, you know, to a much larger volume than it is today. It's not about curbing it.
0: Yes. But
1: how do you embrace it? And, and and in that part in that in that sort of process of embracing the city has a key role. And data systems are are, are at the heart of it. Right. We we in our in the in the, at the heart of our system we have a geofencing um a capability that is enforced by the vehicle in real time. So you don't have the latency of going to the cloud. But you define the rules on the cloud and you can control power limits, you can control of course all with very precise location, you can control power limits, you can control speed limits by street uh, uh, you can control a, a hill climbing capabilities, you can control a torque, you can control a whole bunch of things that impact safety, but also impact the way that these modes uh, are then integrated into the rest of the urban systems. Mm-hmm. So I I do, I do hope cities will use that thing directly, right? It, of course, it requires a three-way conversation with the operators to make sure that it's not just a punitive measure, right? It no. needs to be as, as a way of actually welcoming these new modes uh, uh, as as the key probably uh, uh, enabler for increasing mass transit use and, and and providing an alternative to driving a private car.
0: Great. All right, last question. So one thing that's always struck me as interesting about sort of the, you know, the scooter e-bike evolution that's coming out of China is that it was, it's not coming out of the automotive OEM stack. It's coming out of the, Chinese electronics manufacturing stack, which means it's evolving much more weirdly. You mentioned earlier, we you know we need vehicles for the elderly, we need covered vehicles. Um, I'm curious if you've seen in your research on this, is there a, you know, everyone wants a Moore's Law and everything, um, but like, you know, is there, a, how fast is that cycle truly evolving? Is it moving as quickly as we think? And have you seen any sort of patterns in vehicle evolution and how quickly that's moving compared to cars, say?
1: Look, the car didn't, develop, didn't follow a Moore's Law at the beginning for technologically, right? It exactly. Took, it took several decades for um, the total cost of ownership of a car to be understood to a precise enough level, so that the car rental companies of the world could really flourish, mm-hmm. right? And that really started, in this, you know, in the '70s to to, to explode. Mm-hmm. Right? Until then, you had Bonanza in in sort of car sales, you know, since the '20s, right, uh, where 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 um, where margins were high, of course, with ups and downs, you know, on the way. Uh, but it was, you know, the reliability was still being figured out. The safety was still being figured out. But today, if you came from the moon and you didn't know anything about brands, you walked into almost any car, it's quite amazing, right? They're so reliable. They're all so good, yeah, so to speak, right? For the basics, for what you needed it for. Uh, so it's, the, the, the car has gone a long way, but it took quite a bit of time before it could become a a a, a, a shared asset. Right. And I think we're at the beginning of experiencing the same thing uh for micro mobility. Right? There needs to be a lot more R and D put into this, right? The operators should not be the ones doing this because operating, operational excellence, is a world in itself. Customer acquisition, right? Dealing with the regulators, all that stuff it can can occupy a company in a half. Now you want to tell me that you also mm-hmm. want to do all the R and D for vehicles that require in some way technologies that are tougher to do than what's in cars? Not that it's harder to make a scooter than a Tesla it's a super simple vehicle but because of what we talked about earlier right because it's so cost constrained, mm-hmm. making it as reliable as it needs to be as safe as it needs to be actually requires quite a bit of innovation right eventually we want these vehicles to be people we want people to take them for granted almost like we take street benches for granted right? and there's a long way to go before we get there so a lot more R&D needs to be done specialized companies you know like us I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll join this because it's a very big opportunity financially and there's a big need today. Um, and, uh, and and I think also, we'll you know, other modes, what else can we do in terms of minimizing failures, right? We're today f- addressing 50% of things. How can we get to 80% of potential failures, right? What is the better way to do predictive maintenance on the cloud? Uh, what are the new charging modes, right? You know, today, you know, there is, there, we have development of uh, vending machines mm-hmm. for the swappable batteries, et cetera. But, you know, what else can be done in order to improve the operations? Because uh, really, taking a, you know, a vehicle, a scooter, or an e-bike somewhere and charging and bringing it back doesn't make sense in the long run, right? Um, a, you know How do you connect to the grid or not, uh, et cetera. So charging, a you know, vehicle form factor, safety systems, micro vehicle to vehicle. What about micro cargo vehicles? Right? Think of what cargo vehicles are doing to our cities. Well, I know
0: you have to run, probably so presumably to be stuck for me outside. in Russian traffic. Yes, as I say, time to run. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for enduring our uh, unexpected Russian guests on this. And um, yeah, it's been fascinating. When I hear micro my, micromobility evangelists tell us how early it is and the evolution of that, I always sort of roll my eyes at it. But thank you for elaborating exactly how early it is and how underdeveloped it is. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Greg.
0: Pleasure.